With continual development in technology, hackers and cyber criminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run-of-the-mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real-time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you, which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. Let's get started. Animal Farm by George Orwell Chapter 5 As winter drew on, Molly became more and more troublesome. She was late for work every morning, and excused herself by saying she had overslept, and she complained of mysterious pains, although her appetite was excellent. On every kind of pretext, she would run away from work and go to the drinking pool, where she would stand foolishly gazing at her own reflection in the water. But there were also rumours of something more serious. One day, as Molly strolled blithely into the yard, flirting her long tail and chewing on a stalk of hay, Clover took her aside. Molly, she said, I have something very serious to say to you. This morning, I saw you looking over the edge that divides Animal Farm from Foxwood. One of Mr. Pilkington's men was standing on the other side of the hedge, and I was a long way away, but I'm almost certain I saw this. He was talking to you, and you were allowing him to stroke your nose. What does this mean, Molly? He didn't. I wasn't. It isn't true, cried Molly, beginning to prance about and pour at the ground. Molly, look me in the face. Do you give me your word of honour that that man was not stroking your nose? It isn't true, repeated Molly, but she could not look Clover in the face. And the next moment, she took to her heels and galloped away into the field. A thought struck Clover. Without saying anything to the others, she went to Molly's stall and turned over the straw with her hoof. Hidden under the straw was a little pile of lump sugar and several bunches of ribbons of different colours. Three days later, Molly disappeared. For some weeks, nothing was known of her whereabouts. Then the pigeons reported that they had seen her on the other side of Willingdon. She was between the shafts of a smarter dog cart, painted red and black, which was standing outside a public house. A fat, red-faced man, in check breeches and gaiters, who looked like a publician, was stroking her nose and feeding her with sugar. 
Her coat was newly clipped, and she wore a scarlet ribbon round her forelock. She appeared to be enjoying herself, so the pigeon said. None of the animals ever mentioned Molly again. In January, there came the bitterly hard weather. The earth was like iron, and nothing could be done in the fields. Many meetings were held in the barn, and the pigs occupied themselves with planning out work of the coming season. It had come to be accepted that the pigs, who were manifestly cleverer than the other animals, should decide all questions of farm policy, though their decisions had to be ratified by a majority vote. This arrangement would have worked well if it had not been for the disputes between Snowball and Napoleon. These two disagreed at every point where disagreement was possible. If one of them suggested sowing a bigger acreage with barley, the other was certain to demand a bigger acreage of oats. And if one of them said that such and such a field was just right for cabbages, the other would declare that it was useless for anything except roots. Each had his own following, and there were some violent debates. At the meetings, Snowball often won by the majority of his brilliant speeches, but Napoleon was better at canvassing support for himself in between times. He was especially successful with the sheep. Of late, the sheep had taken to bleating, Four legs good, two legs bad, both in and out of season, and they often interrupted meetings with this. It was noticed that they were especially liable to break into Four legs good, two legs bad, at crucial moments in Snowball's speeches. Snowball had made a close study of some of the back numbers of farmer and stock breeder which he had found in the farmhouse, and was full of plans for innovation and improvements. He talked learnedly about field drains, silage and basic slag, and had worked out a complicated scheme for all the animals to drop their dung directly into the fields at different spots every day to save labour of cartage. Napoleon produced no schemes of his own, but said quietly that Snowball would come to nothing, and seemed to be biding his time. But of all their controversies, none was so bitter as the one that took place over the windmill. In the long pasture, not far from the farm buildings, there was a small knoll, which was the highest point of the farm. After surveying the ground, Snowball declared that this was just the place for a windmill, which could be made to operate a dynamo and supply the farm with electrical power. This would lighter the stalls and warm them in winter, and would also run a circular saw, a chaff cutter, a mangle slicer, and an electrical milking machine. The animals had never heard anything of this kind before, for the farm was an old-fashioned one and had only the most primitive machinery and they listened in astonishment while Snowball conjured up pictures of fantastic machines which would do their work for them while they grazed at their ease in the fields or improved their minds with reading and conversation. Within a few weeks, Snowball's plans for the windmill were fully worked out. The mechanical details came mostly from three books which had belonged to Mr Jones. 1,000 useful things to do about the house, every man his own bricklayer, and electricity for beginners. Snowball used, as his study, a shed which had once been used for incubators and had a smooth wooden floor suitable for drawing on. He was closeted there for hours at a time. With his books held open by a stone and with a piece of chalk gripped between the knuckles of his trotter, he would move rapidly to and fro, drawing in line after line and uttering little whimpers of excitement. Gradually, the plans grew into a complicated mass of cranks and cogwheels covering more than half the floor which the other animals found completely unintelligible, but very impressive. All of them came to look at Snowball's drawings at least once a day. Even the hens and ducks came, and were at pains not to tread on the chalk marks. Only Napoleon held aloof. He had declared himself against the windmill from the start, 
One day, however, he arrived unexpectedly to examine the plans. He walked heavily round the shed, looked closely at every detail of the plans, and snuffed at them once or twice, then stood for a little while, contemplating them out of the corner of his eye. Then suddenly, he lifted his leg, urinated over all the plans, and walked out without uttering a word. The whole farm was deeply divided on the subject of the windmill. Snowball did not deny that to build it would be a difficult business. Stone would have to be quarried and built up into walls. Then the sails would have to be made. And after that, there would be need for dynamos and cables. How they were to produce these, Snowball did not say. But he maintained that it could all be done in a year. And thereafter, he declared, so much labour would be saved that the animals would only need to work three days a week. Napoleon, on the other hand, argued that the great need at the moment was to increase food production, and that if they wasted time on a windmill, they would all starve to death. The animals formed themselves into two factions under the slogans Vote for Snowball and the three-day week, and Vote for Napoleon and the full manger. Benjamin was the only animal who did not side with either faction. He refused to believe either that food would become more plentiful or that the windmill would save work. Windmill or no windmill, he said. Life would go on as it had always gone on. That is, badly. Apart from the disputes over the windmill, there was the question of the defence of the farm. It was fully realised that, though the human beings had been defeated in the Battle of the Cowshed, they might make another, more determined attempt to recapture the farm and reinstate Mr Jones. They had all the more reason for doing so, because the news of their defeat had spread across the countryside and made the animals on neighbouring farms more resistive than ever. As usual, Snowball and Napoleon were in disagreement. According to Napoleon, what animals must do was to procure firearms and train themselves in the use of them. According to Snowball, they must send out more and more pigeons and stir up rebellions among the animals on other farms. The one argued that if they could not defend themselves, they were bound to be conquered. The other argued that if rebellions happened everywhere, they would have no need to defend themselves. The animals listened first to Napoleon, then to Snowball, and could not make up their minds which was right. Indeed, they always found themselves in agreement with the one who was speaking at the moment. At last the day came when Snowball's plans were completed. At the meeting on the following Sunday, the question of whether or not to begin work on the windmill was to be put to the vote. When the animals had assembled in the big barn, Snowball stood up, and, though occasionally interrupted by the bleating of sheep, set forth his reasons for advocating the building of the windmill. Then Napoleon stood up to reply. He said very quietly that the windmill was nonsense, and that he advised nobody to vote for it, and promptly sat down again. He had spoken for barely thirty seconds, and seemed indifferent as to the effect he produced. At this, Snowball sprang to his feet, and shouting down the sheep, who had begun bleating again, broke into a passionate appeal in favour of the windmill. Until now, the animals had been about equally divided in their sympathies, but in a moment, Snowball's eloquence had carried them away. In glowing sentences, he painted a picture of animal farms that might be when the sordid labour was lifted from the animals' backs. Electricity, he said, could operate threshing machines, ploughs, harrows, rollers and reapers and binders, besides supplying every store with its own electric light, hot and cold water, and an electric heater. By the time he was finished speaking, there was no doubt as to which way the vote would go. But just at this moment, Napoleon stood up, 
and, casting a peculiar sidelong look at Snowball, uttered a high-pitched whimper of a kind nobody had ever heard him utter before. At this, there was a terrible baying sound outside, and nine enormous dogs, wearing brass-studded collars, came bounding into the barn. They dashed straight for Snowball, who only sprang from his place just in time to escape their snapping jaws. In a moment, he was out of the door, and they were after him. Too amazed and frightened to speak, all the animals crowded through the door to watch the chase. Snowball was racing across the long pasture that led to the road. He was running as only a pig can run, but the dogs were close on his heels. Suddenly, he slipped, and it seemed certain that they had him. Then he was up again, running faster than ever. Then the dogs were gaining on him again. One of them all but closed his jaws on Snowball's tail, but Snowball whisked it free just in time. Then he put on extra spurt, and, with a few inches to spare, slipped through a hole in the hedge and was seen no more. Silent and terrified, the animals crept back into the barn. In a moment, the dogs came bounding back. At first, no one had been able to imagine where these creatures came from, but the problem was soon solved. They were the puppies whom Napoleon had taken away from their mothers and reared privately. Though not yet full-grown, they were huge dogs, and as fierce-looking as wolves. They kept close to Napoleon. It was noticed that they wagged their tails for him in the same way as other dogs had been used to do for Mr. Jones. Napoleon, with the dogs following him, now mounted onto the raised portion of floor where Major had previously stood to deliver his speech. He announced that from now on the Sunday morning meetings would come to an end. They were unnecessary, he said, and wasted time. In future, all questions relating to the working of the farm would be settled by a special committee of pigs, presided over by himself. These would meet in private, and afterwards communicate their decisions to the others. The animals would still assemble on Sunday mornings to salute the flag, sing Beasts of England, and receive their orders for the week, but there would be no more debates. In spite of the shock that Snowball's expulsion had given them, the animals were dismayed by this announcement. Several of them would have protested if they could have found the right arguments. Even Boxer was vaguely troubled. He set his ears back, shook his forelock several times, and tried hard to marshal his thoughts. But in the end, he could not think of anything to say. Some of the pigs themselves, however, were more articulate. Four young porkers in the front row uttered shrill squeals of disapproval, and four of them sprang to their feet and began speaking at once. But suddenly, the dogs sitting round Napoleon let out deep, menacing growls and the pigs fell silent and sat down again. Then the sheep broke into a tremendous bleating of four legs good, two legs bad, which went on for nearly a quarter of an hour and put to end any chance of discussion. Afterwards, Squealer was sent round the farm to explain the new arrangements to the others. Comrades, he said, I trust that every animal here appreciates the sacrifice that Comrade Napoleon has made in taking this extra labour upon himself. Do not imagine, comrades, that leadership is a pleasure. On the contrary, it is a deep and heavy responsibility. No one believes more firmly than Comrade Napoleon that all animals are equal. He would be only too happy to let you make decisions for yourself. But sometimes you might make the wrong decisions, comrades. And then where should we be? Suppose you had decided to follow Napoleon with his moonshine of windmills. Snowball, who, as we now know, was no better than a criminal. 
He fought bravely at the Battle of the Cowshed, said somebody. Bravery is not enough, said Squealer. Loyalty and obedience are more important. And as to the Battle of the Cowshed, I believe the time will come when we shall find that Snowball's part in it was much exaggerated. Discipline, comrades. Iron discipline. That is the watchword for today. One false step and our enemies would be upon us. Surely, comrades, you do not want Jones back. Once again, this argument was unanswerable. Certainly, the animals did not want Jones back. If the holding of debates on Sunday morning was liable to bring him back, then the debates must stop. Boxer, who had now had time to think things over, voiced a general feeling by saying, If Comrade Napoleon says it, it must be right. And from then on, he adopted the maxim, Napoleon is always right, in addition to his private motto of, I will work harder. By this time, the weather had broken, and the spring ploughing had begun. The shed where Snowball had drawn his plans of the windmill had been shut, and it was assumed that the plans had been rubbed off the floor. Every Sunday morning, at ten o'clock, the animals assembled in the big barn to receive their orders for the week. The skull of Old Major, now clean of flesh, had been disinterred from the orchard and set up on a stump at the foot of the flagstaff beside the gun. After the hoisting of the flag, the animals were required to file past the skull in a reverent manner before entering the barn. Nowadays, they did not sit together as they had done in the past. Napoleon, with Squealer and another pig named Minimus, who had a remarkable gift for composing songs and poems, sat on the front of the raised platform, with the nine dogs forming a semicircle round them, and the other pigs sitting behind them. The rest of the animals sat facing them in the main body of the barn. Napoleon read out the orders for the week, in a gruff, soldiery style, and, after a single singing of Beasts of England, all the animals dispersed. On the third Sunday after Snowball's expulsion, the animals were somewhat surprised to hear Napoleon announce that the windmill was to be built after all. He did not give any reason for having changed his mind, but merely warned the animals that this extra task would mean very hard work. It might even be necessary to reduce their rations. The plans, however, had all been prepared down to the last detail. A special committee of pigs had been at work on them for the past three weeks. The building of the windmill, with various other improvements, was expected to take two years. That evening, Squealer explained privately to the other animals that Napoleon had never in reality been opposed to the windmill. On the contrary, it was he who had advocated for it in the beginning, and the plans which Snowball had drawn on the floor of the incubator shed had actually been stolen from among Napoleon's papers. The windmill was, in fact, Napoleon's own creation. Why, then, asked somebody, had he spoken so strongly against it? Here, Squealer looked very sly. That, he said, was Comrade Napoleon's cunning. He had seemed to oppose the windmill simply as a manoeuvre to get rid of Snowball, who was a dangerous character and a bad influence. Now that Snowball was out of the way, the plan could go forward without his interference. This, said Squealer, was something called tactics. He repeated a number of times, Tactics, comrades, tactics, skipping round and whisking his tail with a merry laugh. The animals were not certain what the word meant, but Squealer spoke so persuasively, and the three dogs who happened to be with him growled so threateningly, that they accepted his explanation without further question. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It really helps us get in front of as many people as possible, which would be fantastic. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, 
，拜拜。